Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. A few weeks ago, Dominic Cummings said people should read Philip Tetlock's super forecasting instead of political pundits who don't know what they're talking about. So I did read it and now we're going to talk about it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. The person we spoke to about super forecasting is David Spiegelhalter. He's the Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk. He is one of Britain's leading statisticians. We recorded this conversation last week in his office in the Centre for Mathematical Studies, a beautiful open plan building. There was a lot of maths going on in the background. You might hear some of it. David is, as you will hear in a minute, a real enthusiast, including for super forecasting. His office is full of homemade toys to explain probability to children and people like me. It was a great conversation. Before we get on to super forecasting, a bit about Philip Tetlock, because he's known for two things, really. For a long time, he was known as the guy who showed that experts like me, people who do things like political science, are absolutely hopeless. Chimpanzees. At forecasting, chimpanzees throwing a dart at a board. And I have to say, I think this podcast is a fairly good illustration of his thesis, because we are not good at forecasting. And he spent about 20 years measuring and studying this and, and making his case. But then he morphed into the guy who's looking for the people who are good at it. And in a way, the point is, it's not something you, you learn by having a qualification or a PhD or anything. It's a kind of set of human qualities, and it's testable. And that's the super forecasting project. Do you want to just say a bit about the project and how you understand it? What's he trying to do, particularly with the competitions? Okay, he started the competitions, the Good Judgment Project, by asking people, just volunteers, it could be anybody, to make forecasts about events. Now, the two crucial things. First of all, the events are highly specific and determined. A time horizon is given that this event, will, that Korea, North Korea will launch a multi-stage rocket uh, by uh, September next year or something like that. So tightly defined verifiable forecasts within a fixed period of time. And the other thing that's absolutely crucial to remember is that people were not and actually actively discouraged from saying whether they think it'll happen or not. People provide probabilities of whether it's going to happen. So they give their forecasts in the sense of real probabilities. And it's the quality of those probabilities that Tetlock and his colleagues evaluated. And he just found that there was a group of people who gave better probabilities than others. And we can talk later about what better means because he defines that mathematically. And that this group had these particular characteristics, but also that there were tricks, training to make all of us better at developing these forecasting qualities. And it's a mix of characteristics. So he describes in the book some of the people, and they are definitely not political science PhDs. Yeah. And the whole, a lot of them are kind of retired 
soldiers, people who have done regular jobs, people with time on their hands. And some of these qualities you could call human qualities. They're to do with certain kinds of self-knowledge, awareness of your own limitations, a certain kind of doggedness and determination and openness to new information. And then some of them are mathematical qualities because it also turns out that mathematicians do this better. It's a mix, right? And, and when you read it, you think, well, anyone could do it and then maybe anyone couldn't. Yeah, maybe the numeracy requirements are the ones that are perhaps more difficult to develop. And although, you know, you can improve your numeracy, but it's definitely important to have a feel for magnitude because what they found about the super forecasters is that they weren't just using 60%, 70%. You know, they weren't using broad categories and not the standard categories that most of us use is it will happen, it won't happen, it may happen. You know, just three Yes, categories. no, or 50-50. Yeah, yeah, yes, no, or 50-50, which is totally disastrous. So they refine themselves and refine them. So, so that he finds that their super forecasters are making, in, in receipt of new information, are just making small tweaks, going from 62% to 64%, even 60 constantly making small tweaks now to do that you have to have a real sense of number of magnitude it's not maths as some do some mathematical modeling but it's not maths it's to do with numeracy and a sense of magnitude and a sense of number you know what does the difference between 62 and 63 mean i know a lot of people find probability confusing because there's always this question so you get it a lot in politics trump wins the election People, quote unquote, didn't predict yeah. it. And so Nate Silver said it was a sort of 70-30 chance against. Then it happens, he's wrong. And of course, people say, well, he wasn't wrong. So you move your prediction from 62 to 64, and then the event either does or doesn't happen. The whole point of this project is it's cumulative, right? The only way you can measure people's ability in this space is to repeat and to yeah. see over time with one-off events, a single probability forecast doesn't tell you anything about someone's overall capacity to make such predictions. I think if you said 99.99% certain and it didn't happen, even that one event is 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 telling you about it. And it should be said with Trump, there were one or two people who yeah, did yeah. that. Oh, I'm and certain they, that. And certain, Hillary can't lose. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's all hopeless. And uh, Tetlock describes this quite nicely as the wrong side of maybe. And so anybody who says above 50-50, then people say, oh, he's predicting they will win. This is so uh, just a deep misunderstanding Again, it's trying to reduce forecasts to what will happen or what won't happen, which is a complete opposite of what this project was trying to do. Now, the 70-30 is quite interesting because Nate Silver was one of the highest ones to say it's 30% chance of Trump winning and then Trump won. One way to view that is that, you know, if you ran the election three times in three parallel worlds, Trump would win in one and Clinton would win in two. Well, that's not a disastrous call to, to say that. So that seems completely reasonable then that Trump will win in one of three possible futures. And even with the one-off, he did better than the people who said it was 95-99. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And okay, can we do some maths? Uh, yeah. Yeah, good. I knew you wanted to do maths because it's not, it's really annoying. Tetlock's food for forecasting, but he doesn't put in the maths of it. The crucial thing is the penalty that you are awarded by making your forecast. And at the moment, the forecast, like, you know, Nate Silver got it wrong. Well, that's idiotic. He said because he didn't say 100% or because he was the wrong side of 50-50, he got it wrong. Now, um, the point about it is that in these competitions that you are mathematically scored according to your forecast. And if you say, for example, that something is 50-50, well, you're not really providing any information. If you say that it's 100%, 
and it happens, there's a penalty score. Um, you'll penalise nothing. And if you say 0% and it happens, you made the biggest mistake, then you're penalised in this case 2 or, or 1, you know, some, some maximum. And in between, there's a scale for what you're penalised by getting it wrong, um, depending on the probability you gave to something that actually happened. But that is not linear. If you said, uh, you know, 80% of it happening and it happened, you're, you're in a sense 0. 0.2 wrong. And if you said 30% of it happening, like Trump and it happens, you're 0.7 wrong. You don't lose 0.2 and 0.7 in those circumstances. You essentially lose the square of those. So for the 0.2, you'd lose 0.04. And for the 0.3, you would lose 0.49, which is the 0.7 squared. So you're losing more than 10 times as much for saying 30% rather than 80%. So that, what it is, is a, a quite a strong penalty for being the wrong side of maybe. You know, there's an increasing penalty of that. Now, it turns out that that square rule, which was developed by weather forecaster Breyer in the 1950s, is the mathematically correct one if you want people to be honest about their statements. If you, you know, which seems perhaps intuitive, you just scored people linearly. If they're 0.2 out, you lose 0.2. If you're 0.7 out, you lose 0.7. It actually encourages people to exaggerate. If Nate Silver was being scored in that way, he would have said, Trump can't win. You know, if you're less than 50-50, you just say zero. If you're more than 50-50, you say 100%. And that maximizes your expected score if you are actually being scored linearly. And that's disastrous, disastrous. That's the very quality. You want people to openly and honestly express their uncertainty. And if you want to do that, you have to use a scoring rule, as they're known, like that square one, the Breyer score. And that's what they use throughout. Because it is a competition and there's always a risk that people are going to game it. And this is designed to that, prevent them I, from gaming exactly, it. And you'd game it. If I knew that was, in other words, if I'm making predictions, I need to know the scoring rule in order to know what predictions I make. Because I would lie. Because what you want to do is win the competition. Yeah, you don't yeah. care whether North Korea is going to war no, or not. No, you no, want to win the competition. Win if I was going to try to win the competition and I knew it was being scored wrongly, I would just lie. I would just exaggerate all my feelings. And that's hopeless. He also describes, I mean, it's a really interesting book. He describes this mix of people who are good at it because they're kind of self-isolating in a way from the noise they're open to new information but they're quite astute about judging how human beings can be led astray and so it's, some of it is a really solitary pursuit and then it gets a lot better where you put people in groups and people with certain kinds of attitudes to group behavior including both tolerance and robustness under criticism do well it's a really interesting study of psychology as well as math. Yeah, they're psychologists. And I think, okay, I would say the crucial thing about, um, you know, a good super forecaster is that you've got to totally isolate yourself emotionally from the problem because you must not be misled by what you would like to happen or what you think should happen. In other words, your moral feeling about what is right or wrong in the world or your preferences for certain outcomes, you've got to totally take those away. You have to be cold about it. You've got to not feel any uh, sense of joy or, or anger about either of these events. I've got a friend who's essentially a professional gambler and he's you know, the highest liberal sensitivities, but he made a lot of money by betting on Trump winning the election and on Brexit happening neither of which he would support, because he could just separate totally his emotions. And he realized that the betting was, was reacting too slowly to the information because people were going with their feelings rather than the knowledge. One of the examples he gives is George Soros famously yeah. Yeah. shorting the pound, and it was a pretty cold 
yeah, and very yeah, lucrative. Very, very ru- you've got to be, in a sense, ruthless about it, unemotional about it. And and as you said, the characteristics of being open, you have this open-mindedness, open to competing views, being able to see the other person's point of view, not being driven by ideology in any sense at all, having a broad perspective. And as you said, it's very solitary, a bit nerdy. I hadn't realised till I read the book how hard people worked at this. They spent a lot of time researching these issues. The other and lovely characteristic he points out is the difference between an inside and an outside view. I, I try to do this as a statistician whenever I hear uh, a risk of something, you know, to then look at, well, how does that compare with what I know about the outside world? What's going on? So you're looking at the risk of, you know, COVID-19, which who knows what, actually what it is. But my comparator is seasonal flu. You know, I take this outside view, which kills, on average, 6,000 people in this country every year. Well, you know, that's really serious. And that, in a sense, is perhaps a, a reasonable comparator for a contagious disease. And then, he says, you, you take this outside view where you don't look at the actual problem at all. You look at what a real background, not the specifics. And then you take the inside view, a lot of the specifics. And, and when he lists the sort of characteristics of what makes one of these super forecasters, there's a lot of, oh, not too much of this, not too much of the other. It's hugely sort of middle of the road, not being pulled in either direction, not being too cautious, not being too swayed by new information, but being swayed to some extent by new information. It's always that balance. And as you, as you said as well, the interesting thing is when they get together in teams, they could really improve their performance even more because one person, no matter how much they try, find it very difficult to develop the perspectives of different people. But once you start hearing other people's perspectives, as we all know when we sit around actually being open and listening, actually listening, because that's, the, I think, the other characteristic of these people. They listen. They don't just spout. They listen and find other people's perspectives and learn from them and then will change their minds and be able to base their judgment on more information. And that should, in theory, always be a good thing. So we're talking about this in large part because of Dominic Cummings, because he made it a news story. And I think we're going to come on to that. But as people hear this, they might struggle to reconcile that description of a certain kind of mindset and openness with at least the caricature of both Cummings and Sabisky, the guy who he had to get rid of. Let's come to that in a second, because there's a wider question here, which is, there are these people with these characteristics, and Tetlock just takes it for granted, it would be very useful in policymaking and government to have more, at least of this kind of information. But I think there is a difference between having more super forecasting and having more super forecasters, because there is a question about how you integrate people like this with these, not just these kinds of attitudes, but these kinds of human qualities into complex organisations. I just want to read you one line from the book, Mm -hmm. because I think Tetlock's very aware of this issue. He's talking about super forecasters and, and the way in which his competition picks out certain people having these qualities. And he says, replicating this in an existing organization with real employees would be a challenge. Singling out people for super status may be divisive and transferring people into cross-functional teams can be disruptive and there's no guarantee of results. It would be really hard to take this pretty artificial experimental framework and plug it into existing organizations and yet the information is very valuable. I, That's the puzzle. Uh, yeah, I think I think it would have to be handled very carefully. But I'm used to working among some pretty nerdy people who perhaps not have not got great social skills, and perhaps maybe even their values and their ethics might be not be those that we would naturally choose. 
However, they can be incredibly useful. I'm thinking, for example, like quants in a hedge fund or something like that. The people who kept in the back room, but can make fantastic forecasts and make a lot of money for people by actually being so skilled with their modeling that they can work out, you know, really discriminate between quite small probabilities in an algorithmic sense, algorithmic trading. The people who develop those models are enormously valuable and useful. However, you don't necessarily want them fronting the organization. And actually, they could be quite difficult. They need to be handled very carefully in any organization. I would see super forecasters as, as the same. Weirdos, weirdos and misfits. I think it's very reasonable of weirdos and misfits within an organization. Maybe metaphorically, they need to be kept on a chain. You know, that it means that they will be disruptive. They might be totally insensitive to what other people feel about them or about, about because they're ruthless. And the coldness, as you said. They could be extreme. They might be extremely cold. They might be actually very charming people. But they, when it comes to evidence and argument, they will be absolutely cold. I mean, hasn't this been a principle in a lot of you know, high-level decision-making bodies that you need red teams and blue teams? You need disruptive organizations. I mean, I was reading... Um, Ashley is in the book as well about how, you know, the, the Kennedy government in 1961 made a complete bulls up of the Bay of Pigs because this massive groupthink with no one questioning the assumptions. But when it came to Cuba, they learned from this and deliberately set up, particularly his brother, Robert Kennedy, to constantly question, to be a real pain and to actually, in a really quite abusive way, you know, question what other people were saying, questioning assumptions as a deliberately disruptive influence. And I would say if I was, you know, which thank heavens I'm not, you know, in charge of important decisions, I would want a variety of perspectives and some of which would be deliberately disruptive. And the fact that I might not even like those people particularly, the fact that they might be rude and like their values and like their ethics does not mean they can't be valuable. It does mean they have to be handled incredibly carefully. And I would much rather have a handle well some super forecasters in an organization who could take this cold, ruthless approach to evidence and data and say, be totally uninfluenced by what they'd like to happen or what they feel should happen, and to be there to give me advice. But not to be in charge, necessarily. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think Cummings thinks that he himself is a super forecaster. And I, and I know that he believes... And he's talked about why he values having physicists, not necessarily on a chain, but yeah, yeah. at his beck and call. And it's because he has experience, I believe he thinks, in the referendum campaign, which was he very successfully managed, that physicists are very good at spotting complete nonsense, in his view, partly because of that dispassionate view. And, and in the world of Whitehall and polling and political parties and special advisors, that quality is incredibly rare, actually. But it's also, as you say, very disruptive. But there's another question, and maybe we can talk about this example because people will be familiar with it maybe from the film Zero Dark Thirty. The, he talks at length about the probabilities that the man in the compound was bin Laden because there's also a question of, leaving aside the personalities of the super forecasters, this probabilistic information, finely grained, big difference between 62%, 64%, 66%, but you're president of the United States and... Everyone knows you have to make a decision. What's your read on I, that? I think the Obama issue is, is fascinating, partly because um, the super forecasting, but there's this other recent book called Radical Uncertainty by Mervyn King and John Kay, which takes a totally diametrically point of view about the Obama 
issue. Just to recap, when they had the the information about whether Bin Laden might be in this compound or not, they did set up different teams. They had red teams and blue teams. They were, you know, sceptical teams who came in with a probability of 30% that he was in the... um, in the compound, and others were, you know, 80, 90% really confident he was there. But it was, was him. They, no, knew, it was they him. knew someone yeah, was there. They but knew was somebody that there. Was it actually Bin Laden in the compound? And um, it, it's been argued, there's been academic papers written about whether these teams should have got together and produced a composite judgment to give to the president or not. And some claim he, they should have got together and only produced one judgment. As it was, it didn't. The president received all these different judgments. You know, when he was interviewed afterwards, he was being quoted as saying that, well, I was getting all these different um, judgments, all these probabilities were just trying to disguise uncertainty. In the end, it was 50-50 and I made a call. And that's given an impression that all these probabilities were a waste of time. I think that is completely wrong interpretation of what was going on. I'm not saying Obama, you know, the the, um, the decision was wrong. But the, this, oh, I heard lots of different opinions. Therefore, it was 50-50. I had and I'm the president, call. I have to make and, and And these probabilities essentially were a waste of time. Well, hang on. If, if the teams had said, oh, 5%, 10%, 15%, there would have been a huge variety of opinions, but it would have been pretty damn clear it was not 50-50 that actually this was a pretty unlikely that he was in the compound. Some might have been more, you know, higher than others. But some... So I think the 30 to 90% range was incredibly valuable. Tatlock reckons, you know, on medium was probably about 70%, 70-30, which seems a reasonable call to go ahead. Um, and luckily this was uh, not a Trump situation. But it was not, I don't think it was 50. I don't think, I don't, I don't think, and when Obama was saying, oh, it's 50-50, he didn't really mean 50-50 mathematically. He said it was, uh, you know, there was arguments both ways and he made a judgment call. But I would say if I was in his situation, which thank heavens I will never be, I would find it incredibly valuable to get that range of opinion quantified. Now, the book Radical Uncertainty totally disagrees. They say, oh, this was a complete waste of time, uh, all these numbers, we just couldn't know. They should have just given narratives about uh, what it was doing. I think they, it's completely wrong. This was not radical uncertainty, deep uncertainty. This was a problem of exactly the kind in the super forecast. It was a Tetlockian problem. It was a very Tetlockian problem. It was not open-ended. It had a fixed time period. It was actually what, you know, the technical epistemic uncertainty. It wasn't even about the future. It was about, is he this, the person in this compound? So it's about what we don't know. There was no broad other possibilities, either was or he wasn't. It was a pure Tetlock problem, absolutely designed for people to give probabilities to and to use those probabilities efficiently. And you know the kind of problem it is, because the minute they realised it was him, the relief presumably was overwhelming. It's not that kind of uncertainty where you don't know whether you found the answer. You know yeah, when you yeah. found the no, answer. This was a real Tetlock problem. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's another account of that, a very interesting one, in a book by Ben Rhodes, who was uh, Obama's foreign policy advisor, which is about the role that Joe Biden played. May be the next president of the United States, may not. 
we maybe talk about the odds, the odds of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but so, but, but, that's a, but that's a tech Lockean problem. It is. It's not a rad- radical one. Yeah. It, it was more like the Cuban missile scenario for Biden. So Biden, in his mind, was pretty unsure. He didn't really have a strong view. So he thought he should be a skeptic because right. he thought his role as vice president yeah. was to really push hard against Obama because the risks were high. And he thought someone in the room with not super forecaster status, but old poll who yeah. maybe has a gut feel for these things status should push back yeah. without really believing it. He thought that was his role. Yeah. And Obama valued it. Yeah. And then as soon as Obama made the decision, Biden completely switched and was 100% behind and you need that mix too. That, I think that, that's, that's, that, that would Robert, be my critique. You need that as well. That was a Robert Kennedy role yeah. in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Was, that, that to have that skeptic, the devil's advocate, I think it would be incredibly valuable in any situation like that. And if people have, may have different views about Biden, but that book is really interesting because Biden was pretty clear in his own mind. There's a kind of political quality to this kind of skepticism. So I don't think Biden is a super forecaster by any means. But he absolutely gets that you do need the counter view to shape the thinking of the man who has to decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's because in the end, you know, you've got these super forecasters and they these probabilities might be good, and things like that, but they're not the decision makers. They're only input and data in a sense that the decision maker has to take into account, which is hugely more complicated than just these probabilities. Super forecasters have got the easy time of it. They're just quoting the odds because uh, they could make money gambling. Uh, that's the other thing that you know, having super forecasting ability to be able to give good probabilities for events will net you a lot of money because they're better than the betting markets. These people could make a lot of money. And the betting markets have not had a good run with elections recently, famously. I mean, again, it depends how you want to read it. But the four big surprises, the Tories winning a majority in 2015, then Brexit happening, then Trump happening then Theresa May failing to get a majority in 2017. Each one was priced on the betting markets at 15%. So to get one of those wrong, but cumulatively, yeah, they, it was they, a one in 2,000 chance. They got a huge amount of inertia in them, the betting markets. And groupthink. The groupthink. They don't respond quickly enough to new information. And they do reflect, just like horse races, reflect you know a lot what people would like to happen rather than uh, what they actually think will happen well what they, what they should think will happen they not people are not cold enough about it or it's collective hedging and collective hedging is also not cold because you want the opposite to happen i think a lot of people would if they read tetlock's book very struck by how human it is and the emphasis it places on human forms of intelligence because i think there's a background assumption for many people that super forecasting is one step before the great AI future where all of this kind of predictive work is going to be done by machine learning. No, okay. Why, why the no, no, no? No, 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 no. Well, I work on super forecasting in the sense that, that we work on telling uh, women with breast cancer uh, what the chances are of them surviving 15 years if they have, for example, chemotherapy. And they take into account all their individual features. Now, our colleagues develop the actual mathematical algorithms, but we work on putting a, a user-friendly front end on it that the doctors and the patient and their families can, in fact, use to give these probabilities out. These are good numbers. These have all the characteristics of Tetlock's super forecast. They're well calibrated, and that when we say 70%, 70% of those women will survive 15 years, and they've got as good discrimination as you can hope for. No, they don't just give the same numbers to everybody. And time and time again, those kind of algorithms, statistical algorithms, have been shown to beat humans in making these probabilistic judgments. So algorithms can do super forecasting and are incredibly valuable in those repetitive well-understood, data-rich, restricted problems. 
So absolutely, this is not going to happen. It's been happening for ages. But every time you buy, do an insurance claim, you know, you insurance, you fill up your website. There's an algorithm making some probability judgment or whatever. So absolutely, this is happening all the time. And people have got, you know, made a huge amount of money out of horse racing algorithms, out of football algorithms, and so on. That is happening. And you don't need a fancy AI. You just need some basic statistics most of the time. Tech Lockean problems, though, are much more complex. Trying to predict the future about what a country will do in six months, even in six months' time, is not that sort of problem. It's a different category of problem. And I think this is the big mistake that people make about machine learning and AI. They, they take examples like I'm describing in a well-defined medical context. They take chess and go. They take machine translation. They take even you know, image processing and say, oh, well, it can do this. Therefore, we can use AI to predict what Russia will do. And so, absolute nonsense. This is totally different categories of problem. Totally different. And it's just a mistake, a category, what we'd call a category error. So the example that you mentioned, Biden becoming president of the United States, that's a super forecasting problem. Mm. It's not completely open-ended. It's pretty well defined. The information space, you know, it's fuzzy around the edges, but some of the core stuff is there. Humans versus machines on that one, you're still very much on the side of the humans. Uh, yeah, if they're very thoughtful humans. I mean, I don't know. Because what, it's a political which, problem? Well, because well, it's a well, human you, problem? What, what database would you train a machine learning algorithm on? You don't have a lot, lot of presidential yeah, elections. Got, none like this one. Or some pre- no, yeah, none exactly. like this one. No, exactly. No, it's, it's complete. I'd be completely hopeless. I mean, the outside view uh, would look at the proportion of uh, recent presidents who had, you know, not knowing anything about the presidents, which ones went on to the second term, won their second term election. And which is very common, the ones who stood, I think is a high percentage. So that would be my baseline point. Without knowing anything about the candidates, the chance of an pre- incumbent president winning a second term is, I, don't, I'm just, I haven't checked the data, but this would be a data thing, might be 80%. It's high, it's high. It's high it might be 80%. And that, would, that might be enough, actually, to certainly mean that the evidence would have to be pretty strong to push it below 50-50. They really have to be stronger. So it's a mixture, you see, of just as the um, super forecasters use, they use data a lot for this outside view to get that broad perspective, that ballpark figure from available data that doesn't refer to the specific case. And that is incredibly valuable. And then having got that ballpark starting point, you then tweak it according to the specific circumstances. And that requires judgment. I think Trump is the best example of this because the people who called it right, and again, by called it right, I don't mean that they just said it was definitely going to happen, but were better on the percentages, were the ones who looked at Trump and didn't think, oh my God, this is Donald Trump. They thought, this is the Republican candidate. Our outside view is, how would we expect the Republican candidate to, to do under these circumstances, these economic circumstances and so on? And he did roughly as well as you'd expect the Republican candidate to do. The people, I would include myself in this, who whose first thought was, oh my, my God, God, it's, it's, it's TV's Donald Trump running for president, lacked all of the coldness yeah, yeah, that we exactly, need. And it's exactly. hard with Trump to be cold, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, uh, but this yeah. time around, we mustn't yeah. make that mistake again. No, he's yeah. an incumbent president with a booming economy. I think the fact he's Donald Trump gives you reasons to not just tweak, but maybe come down from that 80% figure. But not the kind of no man so, like so this could a, become got president very of the United loyal, States. got a very loyal yeah, oh, yeah. following. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. There's and there may be reasons to go up as well. Lots of characteristics about it that are very, that are very strong. And you, you just got to separate your emotions. Can we talk about foxes and hedgehogs? 
Yeah. I, cause I, I, yeah, we can talk about anything you like. Yeah, no, no, it's a podcast. No, that, that's the image that I, it's a very strong one that Tetlock uses all the time, that, that you've got to try to be, you know, there's this phrase that the hedgehog knows, you know, one big Isaiah Fox News many things in, in Isaiah Berlin. I think it's very useful to see that, you know, you've got to be a fox. You've got to have a broad perspective of not being led by ideology or feelings or some sort of idea of how the world works, some dominating thing. You've got to be open to all these different stimuli and alternative perspectives. You have this actively intelligent, you know, reflective, numerate, all these characteristics. But what Tetlock doesn't list is unemotional, I think, because the other thing he does say is the effort involved in doing this. This is not, super forecasters don't just sit there and say, oh, I think it's 75%. They think and think and study and get data and talk to people. And, and then learn, sleep on it and come and back and come think back of, to it and revise yeah. and constantly. This is hard work to do this. This is not just some, oh, they're good judges of character, good judges, they're not just, they haven't got some mystical insight. This is slog. And this is something to some extent which you can learn. He does also say there's a big difference between being the person you would want to go to to find a good prediction of the likely answer to the question and being the person you would go to to decide what's the question that's worth asking. And the question of what question should we ask, it may well be that the hedgehogs are better at that. Actually, under certain circumstances, you do need a different set of qualities. I mean, that is actually closer, I'd say, to political judgment. What's the question? What's the answer is... A different kind of thing. The, yeah, the, we talked about these Tetlockian problems, and Tetlockian problem is one that is totally circumscribed. You know, the question and the time horizon has been absolutely posed clearly, so it is potentially verifiable. And that is a minority of questions that people actually have to judge. Although you could say that the current virus one, you know, in six months' time, how many people will be dead in the UK? Um, the current estimates, were, I'd say, would run between five and half a million, five and five, you know, over five orders of magnitude. Those are both plausible, you know, scenarios that, you know, could be potential. So, so you know, which of these we could define a Tetlockian competition? Will the number dead in six months' time be between five and 50, 50 and 500, 500 to 5,000, 5,000 to 50,000, 50,000 to 500,000? Okay, put your probabilities on those different possibilities. That'd be a great thing to do. I'm not suggesting you should do it, although I'm, mentally I'm doing it in my head, but I'm not going to tell you my answer. But then there's another question, which would be, when you come to your answer to that question, you then have to judge what are the trade-offs of the kind of political and policy steps we would need to take. You know, there are, there well, again, there's an equivalent scale yeah. to shut, from shutting down the country yeah. through to allowing some people to die to yeah. keep things and, moving. And, and the point is that my judgments, of course, have to somehow put in the decisions that have been made, it will be made in the intervening period, because those numbers are not you know, random future events. They will depend on what is done. So in, in order to get to those numbers, and this is the other thing that um, Tetlock would recommend what the people do, they deconstruct the problem. They don't just go straight for this final total. You'd say, oh, well, OK, then you start working through the different scenarios. If the government took a, a really stringent Chinese view and absolutely cut with Chinese, which or seems to... what's now become the Italian view as well. The Italian view, of, well, yeah, maybe less successfully. You know, maybe, you know, you'd get one result. And if you actually had a more liberal view, you know, for the sake of the economy or the the political system blah 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 you know you might get another result and we don't know what decisions will be made uh, sure people are thinking in in these terms but what it is a Tetlockian problem it is well defined whereas the sort of situations I was talking about this book Radical Uncertainty about if you think 10 years out whoa 
very difficult to you could pose Techlockian problems but you have to wait so long to find out if you're right or not and so much will happen in between that I, I'm more sympathetic to the view of we just don't know but there are these alternative narrative threads uh, what is going on is perhaps the right question to ask let's do a little bit about Cummings because <laughs> he's the <laughs> I was really grateful to him for saying read this book because I really enjoyed the book. It's a great book. He's an odd mix because he's a fan of the Tetlockian approach. And if you read his blog, he's a kind of Bismarck super fan. Bismarck is radical uncertainty. Bismarck is political skill with these kind of futures that spiral very quickly out of control and finding a way through it. And Brexit is also this. So Cummings is the man who I think did win the referendum. But Cummings is now the man who's helping the government think about a future that does run five, ten years ahead. I would say a much more Bismarckian problem, whereas winning the referendum in some ways was a more Tetlockian problem. And politics, it's always going to be hard to isolate the, the Tetlockian bits within this space. And I think the disservice Cummings did to super forecasting is he kind of implied that you plug it in and it just makes things go better. And he knows that's not true. That wasn't even a question. That was just my view. That's your view. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, I think these two perspectives, you know, which are represented by these two books that you know, I've been reading, are both incredibly valuable. I mean, they shouldn't be put up as alternatives or that one dominates. I think the Radical Uncertainty book goes far too far in saying, oh, we shouldn't be putting, can't put probabilities on events. We can't put probabilities on what we don't know, which is complete nonsense. Of course we can. We do it all the time. My example always, you know, I flip a coin. Before I flip the coin, everyone says, oh, the probability is 50-50. But I flip the coin, cover it up. What's the probability this is heads? Well, it either is or it isn't. And the sort of statement, it's still 50-50. That's the reasonable bet. Of course it is 50 unless unless I look at it. And all that, you know, and, and so that, unless it's your special coin, unless it's my special coin, but it could have been the special coin before I flipped it. So it's all assumption based, and all probabilities are conditional on your knowledge, even ones about the future or about what you don't know. And you can put probabilities on what you don't know. So that's absolutely the case. So there's these two perspectives: one, which is a sort of, as many people would have said, you know, a small world perspective in which everything's well defined and you define what your problem is and put a boundary around it tech locking thing and the full world problem which is this you know massive view of all sorts of things could happen all these threads all these possible futures going out into the future that which we cannot envisage we're getting into the unknown it's doing known unknown and unknown unknowns difference between risk and uncertainty and the old frank knight sense these are very valuable perspectives there's no right or wrong they're both there there's not a competition between those and in the work we do, you know, always trying to recognise, you just need to know what situation are we in? Because the real mistake is when you are in a situation of quite deep uncertainty and you think you have tamed it into a situation, into a small world situation of quantifiable risk. And that's what the Radical Uncertainty Book is, is criticising these economists who believe their models and believe that people are rational economic agents and all this nonsense. And of course, they're, they're absolutely right to criticise those. But as, uh, as um, you know, do they really, do people really believe that? People have acted as if they believe their models in the past, which, of course, we could say led to the financial crisis. It's not a coincidence it's Mervyn King who wrote that book. Some people are very scarred by what happened in yeah. 2007, 2008. But that then brings in another critique that Tetlock takes seriously, which is the kind of Taleb black swan mm. critique. And that phrase black swan that Taleb coined is often associated with the financial mm. 
crash or crisis, this thing that seemed to come out of nowhere out of a clear blue sky. And Tetlock takes very seriously the thought that that is a, a real critique of what he does because his problems are not well suited, and it's partly the questions are much more narrowly defined, to a world in which really dramatically disruptive events of very low probability have to be planned for. So we were going to put out as our next podcast a conversation with Rachel Bronson about the doomsday clock. And it also touches on those deep existential fears. What if we miss not the virus that might kill 5,000 rather than 500, but the event that disrupts everything? And super forecasters are going to be no better at spotting that than anyone else. Is it a fair criticism? Absolutely, because super forecasting is nothing about imagination. It does not set the problems. The problems for, are set externally for super forecasters, and they've solved these these puzzles, as, as Mervyn King in his book is talking. It's not puzzles, these are mysteries. Even envisaging the possible futures is impossible. We can't do it. And that's absolutely crazy. And this is... And the machines can't do it either, the obviously. The machines can't do it, really. They not, as in more no, psychohistory. No, exactly. You can't do it. I mean, the best thing, people who work in scenario planning know you need, you know, red teams, you need people, deeply disruptive people who will think of worst imaginable situations and will really think out in the tails of the distribution. The people doing this in Lloyd's, you know, with emerging risks, they sit around a table working, oh, what if two, you know, jumbo jets collided over the middle of London? They're sort of imagining all these catastrophes that might happen. And, and how, whether Lloyd's would be resilient to that thing. And this, this resilience is the crucial thing. It's not even robustness. You know, robustness is when you can deal with things imaginable, a wide range of imaginable risks and things. Resilience is when you need to be resilient to things you've never even thought of. If you've got that perspective, which you need when you're dealing with deeper uncertainty or radical uncertainty, it, it's deeply inefficient. There's no, you can't optimize because you don't know what you're optimizing over. It means you have to have overcapacity. And people are learning this now with supply chains, which are now being, you know, disrupted from China and other Korea and other places. And think, whoa, you know, we should have had overcapacity. You should have had construction. You should have these supply chains alternatives set up all over the world in, play, in, in other places, even though that would not have been the most efficient thing to do. And Taleb's phrase for it is anti-fragile, which is a slightly clunky phrase, but actually it does have some purchase here. Do you think, last question, thinking about the virus not just supply chains, just looking at Britain, British society, a kind of typical representative liberal democracy, ageing society, mm. relatively well off. Are we resilient? I actually think we are remarkably resilient. It's the same when people say, oh, people don't trust experts. I think this is complete nonsense. There's no evidence of that at all. People are basically trusting of expertise and, and advice and scientific advice, not particularly politicians, but that's really, this government is doing really quite well in getting the scientists in a really prominent position. And people are already changing their behaviour, and people will react in a positive way, provided that they feel that the authorities are being straight with them. And being open and honest about both what they know and the uncertainties, and not just the risks, but the uncertainties that they do not know and cannot know what's going to happen or even what is best to do. So you could just see in a society like Iran, where they don't trust the government's statements at all, how people might respond very differently. Italy's an interesting case because basically there's a big distrust of government in Italy, I think, central organisation. So it'd be interesting to see how well people respond to these commands coming down. See, I, I have um, actual confidence 
confidence that people will respond in a reasonable way, provided that the narrative, in a sense, is kept going and kept, I wouldn't say controlled, but is comes from scientifically driven expertise. And there isn't an opportunity for alternative conspiratorial narratives, as have happened, say, with vaccines, to develop and develop a core vocal people who, who just don't believe what is being said. We have to be, I think, preempt that and make sure that that doesn't develop by engaging knowledgeable and scientists with good communication skills out there to tell it how it is. David's new book is called The Art of Statistics, Learning from Data, and he also has a new podcast out. It's called Risky Talk. We will tweet the links to both at tppodcast underscore. We're putting out an extra episode this week that we recorded with Rachel Bronson. She is the woman in charge of the organisation that sets the doomsday clock that tells us how close we are to the end of everything. It is a chilling conversation. Don't listen to it just before you go to bed but it is also really fascinating. That will be available on Sunday. Next week, we're going to be talking with Helen and Adam Tooze about coronavirus and its impact on the world. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Um, that's why that's I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get behind it. You're so. fine. You're fine. Well, and yeah. also your voice is a really good voice. Hello. Wow. <laughs> that, we're Hello. Not, we're not going to compete on that. Yeah. You sing. Yeah, bass. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Okay. That's what I was thinking. That was good. You want that in? Oh, can I show you it? Yeah. Okay. Let me show David. Get David to tell you what it what it does. Great. That was good. Are you from Are you from Bristol, David? Why? And we cannot predict at the individual level. Uh, you know, this is the fortunes of fate. That person died young. We drop this down, and this person might be luckier. And it's just just chance. Flip, flip, flip. So at the individual level, there's almost complete unpredictability about what will happen. However, when we start averaging, putting a lot of people through, and this is now more and more people going into living their lives. It's so noisy, it's lovely. all the different individuals living their unpredictable existences. Isn't it beautiful? Such a lovely noisy one as well. So all these little balls are falling down, each one unpredictable, and yet the final pattern is totally predictable about what it's going to be. Boom. <laughs> and that you. is how we know yeah. how many suicides, how many murders there'll be every year, just about. Yeah. Even though we've no idea 
who it'll be. I think the population level it becomes completely predictable. And the interesting thing is that um, you know this is probability working in a physical sense that you know there's a whole lot of mechanisms each 50-50 which way the balls will fall. You know when it comes to social uh, situations like you know murders and suicides and car crashes and deaths like that, you know there's no we can't think there's any real random mechanism going on. But it's as if there is a random mechanism going on. The number of murders each year follows you know, a Poisson distribution from my you know, statistical sense, almost precisely. And it's as if uh, the lives we lead are governed by uh, extremely complex random processes so that in each year there's a very tiny probability that each of us will have a car accident, you know, be a car, will be murdered, will commit suicide or something like that. And, and you know, these obviously totally depend on our own circumstances and things, but when we aggregate them all together, it's just like a probability mechanism that where, where you have a large number of instances and the pattern then becomes totally predictable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.